Welcome to the Do Dilly Podcast. I'm Niall Baer with Helios Quantitative Research. This show has been designed to support financial advisors and the conversations that you are having with your clients. Each month, I'll be joined with Joe Mallon and Jason Van Thiel from our research team, and we'll take a deep dive into recent and important events. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the August edition of the Do Dilly Podcast. I'm your host, Niall Baer, joined with my co-host, Joe Mallon. How are you doing today, Joe? I'm great. How are you? Doing great. Good news, bad news. Bad news, no JVT today. He is stuck in the basement running confidence rating reports. But the good news is, is that we have a new voice on the podcast. That's going to be Joe Terranova. So it's the Joe show today. A little bit about Joe T. He's the chief market strategist for Virtus Investment Partners, where they have $175 billion in assets under management. He developed the Terranova U.S. Quality Momentum Index, which launched and began publicly pricing in August of 2020. He authored the book Buy High, Sell Higher, which was published in 2012, I believe. And since 2008, Joe T has been a CNBC ensemble member, appearing regularly on Halftime Report, Squawk Box, and contributes to all of their financial content across CNBC's media and digital platforms. So really cool guy, very smart. And it was great to be able to have him on the show and just discuss everything that we wanted. Nothing was off the table. He was very open. And I had a blast. Joe, what did you think about the conversation that we had? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I think having a new voice on the podcast should be interesting for our listeners. You'll recognize, if not his voice, um, you would know his face if you've ever seen CNBC. So it was good to have a little back and forth on the economy, dive into factors, what they mean, um, understand from a practitioner standpoint, how they apply factors to a portfolio. So fun, fun conversation and I hope everyone enjoys it. Likewise. All right. Without further ado, let's get into the August edition of the Due Dilly podcast with our special guest, Joe Terranova. All right. On behalf of Helios and Joe Mallon and myself, Mr. Terranova, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and I'm here per usual, but thank it's good to have, a, have another voice, another <laughs> Joe in the room. So how are we going to differentiate between Joe and I? It's a great point. I have been challenged as a podcast host, but how about I'm just going to go Joe T or Joe M, Joe Mallon, Joe Terranova. I have a lot of options here, so let's just play with those. <laughs> let's get right into it. 2020, crazy year, a lot of unpredictable events. Don't have to go down that rabbit hole. 2021, continuing some of that, but market performance has just been absolutely incredible during the first half of the year. Now we're looking into the second half of the year. What do you think are the biggest narratives that are driving markets for the remainder of 2021? And what are your market performance base cases for the remainder of the year? I think that's a great question to begin with. And, and what I like to do is simplify the strategy and the narrative. I think that's the easiest way to approach investing. Um, for, for the remainder of the year, I think we need to really give consideration towards what I call strategic playbooks uh, from the perspective of it's not a multiple choice exam. It's an open-ended essay exam. We get to write the answers to the questions for the exam in. And what better environment is it than that? And the reason that I reference it's not a multiple choice exam it's because I think we spent the better part of the first quarter and the second quarter in this, this binary debate. And the, and the binary debate centered around so many different uh, equity size classes and strategies, but it was growth or value. Pick one. 
well, we kind of drove ourselves crazy with that, right? Um, if you go back to the March 23rd of 2020 intraday low at 21.91, go all the way back and then carry forward to the end of the second quarter here in 2021. Here's some great evidence why uh, that was a complicated and really a detrimental debate to be having between growth and value. Let's take the three largest sectors. Let's take technology, which we define as growth. Let's take industrials, which we define as value. Let's take financials, which we define as value. Let's measure the performance from the intraday low, March 23rd of 2020, to June 30th of 2021. Well, the S&P returned 96%. Financials, financials were up 113%. Industrials were up 112%. And technology was up 114%. So basically, two percentage points was the difference between these three sectors that we most identify with growth or value. So we spent a large part of the beginning of the year trying to direct investors in a particular direction, right? Concentrate in a direction. We then had uh, the similar debate regarding inflation, transitory or not, real or perceived. Again, a detrimental conversation. Concentration concentration in 2021 will not be rewarded in a portfolio. It's about being everywhere versus being specifically there. And I think looking forward for the remainder of uh, the calendar year, I think that's the emphasis. I think the emphasis is trying to strike a proper balance. It's trying to incorporate equity size classes. It's trying to incorporate all sectors. It's trying to incorporate each of the specific asset classes in some capacity. And to a certain extent, except maybe precious metals or the emerging markets uh, or Japanese equities, you're seeing positive performance in a very dispersed mannerism. Yes, you've got a little bit of relative underperformance for small caps relative to large caps. But it's not overwhelmingly significant, and it's more recent in its nature. I think the Russell 2000 is up about 12% year-to-date, where you've got the S&P a touch below 18%. So avoid concentration. Focus on the diversification story. Be everywhere. Don't be there. It's an open-ended essay. Love it. Totally agree. Joe Mallon, how do you feel about it when you hear... You know, those words, diversification, avoid concentration, especially when you're having these larger scale allocation conversations with advisors every single day. I echo a lot of that sentiment. I mean, the markets have gone pretty much straight up since the depths of the recession in 2020. And even though they're kind of tied at that race right now, the leadership has changed quite a bit and pretty dramatically over that time. And we've stressed to advisors, don't get cute. I think if we look back at the end of Q1 of 2021, a lot of the narrative on the fixed income side was, okay, rates have have run up. What am I going to do? Should I ever own bonds in my portfolio ever again? But that would have been the worst time to sell out. We've seen rates compress quite a bit from that point in time and just re-emphasizing that diversification approach. 
don't get cute, stick to your guns, stay diversified globally, don't try to time things. And in this environment with all of the noise around meme stocks and people hitting home runs, it's tempting to try to outperform and seek and reach that alpha. But we always come back to stay diversified, get the exposure that you want, put a quantitative process in place if you are going to deviate from just a standardized um, asset allocation model. Follow that and don't let the recent run-up really change your strategy as we continue into the rest of 2021. Yeah, I, I, if, I, if I could comment, I think that's very well uh, said and, and it really is accurate in terms of a strategic per- perspective. Um, I, I, I'll tell you what, we'll, let me freshen those numbers up even further for you. If we pull those numbers from March 23rd through August 4th, the S&P is up 101%. The uh, XLF is up 114%. The XLI is up 115%. And the XLK is up 121%. So even you know, adding another 30 plus days upon the figures I gave before, it's still evidence to exactly what Joe's saying. Diversification works. Joe T, right back to you. We know you're a believer in factor-based investing in stocks. Since 2009, when you published your book, Buy High, Sell Higher, the markets have absolutely taken off. 2021 has been a huge year for the markets as well. What are your thoughts on what to look for when inserting factor-based funds inside of a portfolio? I think it's important, first of all, to align any specific factor with the profile and characteristics of the, the innovator or the one who's introducing that strategy to the marketplace. So what's reflected in the Terranova US Quality Momentum Index is a strategy uh, that I have observed, utilized, and implemented on my 30 plus years in uh, financial services industry. It's something that I wholeheartedly believe in philosophically. Uh, It's something that properly is able to calculate for me risk versus reward in a factor-based methodology. Um, that, that's, that's so incredibly important in, in, in choosing a particular criteria. It has to align specifically to your actual approach to investing. Yeah. Joe Mallon, what, what do you think about that? Well, I was just going to, I was going to ask Go another question on that too, is just, you know, I know there's all these factors out there and it's it's been relatively well documented over the past few years on the the merits of adding a factor to an all equity portfolio why did you choose momentum and quality for your index those two specifically versus the other options that were out there well first of all the the title it's it's an evolution uh the title of my book is buy high sell higher that does not mean that I believe buy and hold doesn't work because I actually believe that it does. Now, I want to clarify something and uh, in a certain sense, uh, admit a, a, a mistake. And the mistake was the publisher at the time that the book was being released insisted upon something that would really grab the attention of the reader. So buy high, sell higher is something that I insisted upon as far as a title. But then what was added was why buy and hold uh, is, is dead. 
And I, I fought against that being added to the book. I regret it to this day because it's not something that I really believe in. I do think buy and hold works. Um, with that being said, buy high, sell higher is all about confidence. It's all about the genesis of my financial services career, which was which began in the futures market, studying the price of oil and natural gas and precious metals and soft commodities, uh, observing how they would be pricing, what trends would be evolving, and how long those trends would be sustainable. So everything that I recognized was about identifying confidence within the market. And I think that's what momentum really is. And momentum is a critical factor in markets right now because it's utilized by so many quantitative funds and will continue to do so. Why? Because it is easily studying the information, the data that we assimilate over a prior period and able to kind of tell the story for us in a particular trend that we can identify or the absence of a trend or the reversal of a trend. That's really what momentum means to me, right? Understanding how confident we are in a particular uh, asset. But I felt as though through my presence on CNBC, that there was something more that was needed than specifically observing and implementing strategies with a single factor of momentum, right? You could adjust your time period as it relates to momentum, but I thought you needed something more because the concern I had was I've always been focused on risk first. Risk to me is the primary word in the financial services vocabulary. I always believe you ask yourself before you put on a particular investment, how much can I lose? It's not how much can I make, it's how much can I lose? So studying that, I wanted to kind of improve upon the factor of momentum. And I felt as though it needed some risk mitigation and a shock absorber. So I then began to study the fundamental element, the factor of let's introduce the quality of earnings, let's introduce the strength of a balance sheet, Let's introduce this quality perspective and let's do it in a unique way. So my observation of quality is a criteria of three, return on equity, debt to equity, and then the study of annual sales growth over the prior three years or 36 months. Collectively, that creates a composite score that I can introduce to the factor of momentum kind of treating them as equal and really introducing this risk mitigation uh, factor that I thought was sorely needed in my conversations on CNBC, whether it was portfolio managers or, or analysts. Everyone would say, well, you've got momentum in place. Well, okay, we've got momentum in place, but how qualitative is that momentum? Let's identify uh, the the most fundamentally strongest right equity names that are also exhibiting that momentum, that confidence. Yeah, I like that, and I think I would almost restate it as the old this modern portfolio theory concept, where if you have something that academically works like momentum, 
you combine that with something else that independently works like quality. And those two factors just aren't perfectly correlated to each other. You get a good combination. You, you further diversify your factor exposure. You create a portfolio that's leveraging both of those academic principles and doing so in a way that might help soften the weaknesses in each one when those happen in the portfolio. So I think, I think, and I think a great example of that is so far in 2021, uh, momentum peaked in February as a single factor. Um, year to date, momentum's up. I think it's up probably single digits, uh, but it it certainly uh, quality as a factor is probably twice the performance that momentum is. So when momentum doesn't work, you need something to improve upon it, and it's exactly the environment that I introduced this for is when, as you said, one of those factors might not be working, and I don't know that the investment community that was specifically focusing to momentum as a single factor was really paying proper attention to that potential negative outcome. Specific to your index, do you feel like it is a core positioning or a satellite positioning? And if you feel like it's a core positioning, where do you come up with the confidence or the conviction that this is the right holding for you to have in that core slot? Well, it, it you're you're correct. I will tell you that that it is core. Um, it it also the progression of studying the quality momentum index, which is actually now uh, upon its one year anniversary being published live. It, it it kind of again, and and it speaks to the way I observe markets. It's, it philosophically is in perfect alignment the way I'm thinking about investing. So in 2020, concentration was, was kind of rewarded, right? Um, there, there clearly was their significant outperformance from the industries that were the, the, the digital opportunists, as I like to say. Uh, the, the digital opportunity was, was crystallized. Right, we pulled forward years of revenue growth. Why? Because they could deliver a good or service to a consumer or the enterprise uh, in a digital capacity, and we paid a significant premium for that. But on the other side of that, there was these injured and impaired industries where you saw dramatic underperformance. Concentration was rewarded. Well, the ownership, the holdings in the portfolio have kind of reflected that progression since one year ago where we've slowly begun to remove the concentration from the portfolio, which leaned heavily with an overweight towards technology and healthcare to the point now where we've got that diversified balance that I believe is important in 2021 in the portfolio. So technology is actually at an equal weight. We've got a slight overweight to healthcare to industrials, consumer discretionary, and to financials. We're carrying at an underweight consumer staples and communication services. But in communication services, I suspect we're in the right places. We've got Facebook in the index. We also have Alphabet. We don't have Disney. We don't have Netflix. Hence, you have we don't have AT&T. We don't have Verizon. So hence, you have that underweight. In addition to that, we hold no energy and we hold no utilities. So 
I like the diversified balance. I also like from an ESG perspective that we don't have energy and we don't have utilities and we don't have to have the concerns about the dramatic volatility that currently exists in the spot price of oil and the significant underperformance for energy equities relative to the spot price of oil. You go back from the month of May, the spot price of oil in in, uh, the early part of May was $64. Today, as we speak, it's $68. The XLE was pricing above 50 towards uh, 52. Today, the XLE is pricing at 48. So there's been this dramatic underperformance. There's the ESG element. So I'm happy that we have no uh, ownership of of energy. But this progression over the last year really reflects the philosophy in which I look at markets. And we've removed the concentration. We've got to a much more diversified place. I love the comment that you made about confidence earlier because we're all about confidence at Helios. Joe Mallon, when you hear him talk about having the factors inside of a core positioning, increasing confidence as an investor, how does that make you feel? How do you react to that? Yeah, um, I was going to address that too. It, it, Joe T didn't know that, but we have what we call a confidence rating internally, and we apply it to different funds in each asset class. And the core principle of our scoring system is that anybody can sort and find a fund that has good performance. And we call that appeal. It's important, right? As an advisor, you're looking to select a fund for your client. It should look good. The other half of that is what we call experience. And what has it taken for that fund or that index to achieve those appeal ratings? It's a great way to look at funds and try to balance seeking and stretching for outperformance in an asset class with the experience, the the tracking error, how much the drawdown will be relative to that index once you put it into a portfolio. So we call that the confidence rating. And when it comes to factor, multi-factor based um, funds, mostly ETFs, we, we, we think they fit really well into that conversation because it's about knowing that there's an academic principle behind the factor there's no guarantee that it's going to work month over month over month. Expectation setting and the evidence within the experience calculation of our, our rating shows those stress points, what you can incur in order to seek that potential outperformance over a full market cycle. So we like multi-factor products. I think it's a great solution for advisors. It definitely fits within that core allocation. So if we're looking at large cap blend, that makes a, a significant percentage of most clients' portfolios. And funds that have that diversification, even if they are multi-factor, they tend to just tilt one way or another. And we're not talking about um, you know, funds that take the S&P 500 and whittle it down to, to six positions. That's a different breed. We're talking about f- funds that take the S&P 500, put slight tilt, slight over-underweights on various sectors or individual positions to seek that outperformance. So they really hit the, that sweet spot of blending the appeal and experience over time um, in holding these types of strategies. You know, would, you, would you agree that they also attempt to kind of modernize the core holding? It's funny to me. Um, I don't know if you agree with this or not. It, our whole passion as a firm is unveiling quantitative techniques that are tried and true and academic and providing that to advisors 
for a fraction of the cost. I think factors to me are what a lot of active SMA and mutual fund managers were basing their decisions on for decades and charging up near 100 basis points for it. I think the evolution of factor-based ETFs has really commoditized that concept and said, here you go. Let me do that initial quant screen that many of the most successful stock pickers have been doing for decades. Let me give that to you in a product at a much more palatable cost. And I like that story because I think it really benefits the end client, saves them some fee, but gives them all of the the juice behind a quantitative stock picking process. I also think it's more relatable to a younger generation, millennials, Gen Z, which are finally engaging in the capital markets. They're they're smart. I mean, and they know data is far more accessible. Um, I think just buying funds based upon the merit or the biography of a, a, a mutual fund company um, isn't the top criteria anymore. It is cost. It is um, you know, expectations of what the performance of a fund should be. And undeniably, we all know the shift from mutual funds to ETFs is just a, a structural phenomenon that's going to continue. Right. And hopefully they learn about smoothing out the ride because that's important too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. We've talked enough about equities. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and discuss fixed income. Joe T, I'm really curious to hear how you set the table for a discussion around fixed income during a time where it's not the most attractive asset class. Consistent with my comments before, let's focus on risk first. Where's the asymmetric risk in fixed income? So asymmetric risk, um, if you are a holder of, let's say, the aggregate bond funds, the AGG, right? What do you have? 39% US treasury exposure. Mm-hmm. If uh, you are the holder, I believe Vanguard's got the BNDX is a um, international bond fund, right? A lot of exposure there is negative yielding European debt. So identifying kind of where's the asymmetric risk in a lot of those government bond funds. Then taking that approach and looking for a very multi-sector diversified approach to taxable fixed income, uh, giving consideration to investment grade, which is underperforming high yield year to date, giving the consideration to the loan market or the muni market, um, doing all of this with a very multi-sectored uh, type of strategy. Uh, it's, it's really communicating the same diversification message that I began this conversation with you uh, two gentlemen with. Joe, what do you think about multi-sector bonds? I've heard you talk about them before. Curious if you still feel like it's a great space to be in when it comes to fixed income in the current environment. Depends on the capital need and the profile and age of an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, where, listen, I, I, I truly believe your, your portfolio is the vehicle, which is going to carry you towards what is a series of goals that you have defined for your life, right? Mm-hmm. That's what investing is about. Investing is about, I want to achieve a certain amount of goals and outcomes that require uh, a financial capital contribution. And the, the vehicle to get me there is going to be my portfolio. So depends on the individual, right? 
if the individual, and I, I, I often say a portfolio is very similar to a fingerprint. It's unique to the individual. I, I, I find some humor in when people will say, well, you want 60% exposure to equities and 30% exposure to bonds and you know, 10% exposure to alternative investments. Well, okay. Is that for a 35-year-old that has no capital need or is that a 65-year-old that still has no capital need? You know, so I look at it all of this through the lens of, of, the, the, of the individual. Uh, high yield is definitely being used as an equity replacement. I also think that the boomer generation is invested far longer in equities than they ever thought they were going to have to. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing a lot of mega cap technology stocks have the performance, the multi-year performance that they have, because they offer that, that proper blend of growth as defense. And to a certain extent, they are bond proxies. Now, someone asked me the question earlier on CNBC, is gold still being used as a safe haven asset? Uh, I think Microsoft and Apple are more of the safe haven asset, right? Just because of the strength of their balance sheet, just because of their ability to deliver uh, sustained earnings uh, growth. So, you know... I think it's really dependent upon when you're kind of looking at the universe of valuations where we are currently, and we're turning that conversation back to the individual and saying, A, do you have a capital need in the near term? Because if you have a capital need in the near term, I don't care if you're 30, 50, or 70, or if the S&P is 2,000, 3,000, or 4,000, the market's going to look overvalued to you. You have a capital need, right? If you don't have a capital need, and there's a big difference between a, a, an S&P that's 4,000 to someone that has that capital need. You've got time on your side. You can endure the correction. You can use it as an opportunity. So that's kind of how I, I, I think about uh, valuation. Yeah, I'd add to that too. Uh, I echo everything Joe T said. And the advisors we work with have, have really committed to this concept of not you know sticking to just a normal diversified standard asset allocation and that customizing a portfolio for a client based upon that client's behaviors or goals and dreams and um, customizing a model per bucket or per um, per goal for that client is something that's very important and having the techniques like trend following or economic timing or volatility targeting are all things we specialize in, in trying to really dial in a portfolio for a client. So it's a strange time now. Yields are, su- or, or yields are super low. Fixed income isn't paying much. Equity valuations are really extended. It makes it that much more complicated as an advisor to, to um, create allocations that you'd been accustomed to using for 20 years. So, um, so, but, but let me ask you on that point, don't you think by now advisors should be um, familiar with that? Because since the great financial crisis, the liquidity has been present from the Federal Reserve. They've, they've made an attempt to pull back at times. They've, they've been really unable to. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to ask yourself, looking forward another 10 years, do you think 
Do you think the Federal Reserve will really be able to pull the liquidity back to where it was pre-great financial crisis? I'm not sure that they will. It's going to so be I, tough. <laughs> They've made their bed. I mean, yeah, it, it, so, they, they, they did their best in the run-up to 2020 to try to create a little more flexibility in policy, but they exhausted that and they exhausted it quickly. And I mean, that, that's the conversation we're going to have for the next decade, isn't it? Just there is so much support from the federal government and the Federal Reserve propping up this market that if they try to take, take that out, what's going to happen? Well, ultimately, we hope that they were able to take it out because that means we're got some organic economic growth within the economy. And ultimately, that's what we've been missing for the better part of uh, the last 12 years since the great financial crisis. But mm-hmm. I think advisors have grown familiar with this you know, search for yield environment, and that's really what it is. And I don't see it dramatically changing anytime soon. No, absolutely not. And it feels like, you know, th- this isn't backed by data or anything, but just from an observation perspective that the financial advisor world for, let's say, 10 years prior to this and for the 20 years before that was very much so build a financial plan and then buy and hold for the longest time. And there wasn't much um, attraction to actively managing a portfolio that matches up with the investor's appetite, maybe for adding equities or reducing them based off of what's happening in the market. Um, And that's where I think, you know, enter factors. And now we're getting into more portfolios that are adjusting towards back to that confidence level of where someone feels comfortable in the market and being able to stick to it. Joe T, do you feel like you're seeing a change where people are a little bit more open to actively managing um, a portfolio that's driving towards an outcome it, you know, tied to a financial plan or something like that, especially after this last year where you know, the retail investor just came roaring back? Yeah. So you know that that's that's a different conversation. That's the do-it-yourself craze, as as I like to call it. Um, individually, actively managing portfolios. Uh, I'm not sure we're we're ready to be in that place. I do think active management overall on the institutional side is definitely making a return. You're seeing that a lot of large cap mutual fund managers are outperforming the benchmark this year uh, and doing doing so very strongly relative to what they've done the last five years. So I think institutionally active management is making a little bit of a return. I think the do-it-yourself retail craze is a good thing. I think it's a good thing because it's about engagement. I think it's about engagement. I think everyone has a learning curve. I think uh, all of us with our introduction to investing made a tremendous amount of mistakes that hopefully we learned from. And a lot of the mistakes that we made led us to seek guidance and advisement uh, from, from those in the industry who had proven through a successful portfolio management on a multi-decade period uh, that, that they were able to efficiently communicate to us the right strategies that we should be implementing. So um, I, I think we're, we're, we're getting to uh, a, a much better place in the investment environment with engagement from a younger generation, and certainly on the institutional side, uh, a return to active management as a solution for a lot of the low yield environment that we're challenged by. And I also think it, it goes back to my question before about modernizing products. Um, you know, the hmm. buy and hold, the buy and hold product 
needed improvement, needed modernization, and factors factors provide the opportunity for modernizing and improving uh, those strategies. I have a cousin whose portfolio is up 100% since March of last year, and he thinks he's an awesome portfolio manager. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, to, just to close out that thought, you know, I sympathize with advisors because I think they are are seeing a lot of that. Where if you got into investing over the past twelve months, you think you're a rock star when you're not really comparing the alternative investment to just holding the index. So we're seeing that a lot from advisors and their end prospects and clients. Is hey, I'm up a hundred percent. What do I need you for? The time will come. It will be opportune again, and they'll realize that they'll need the professional help. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like. Five years ago, investors might come in and say, why is my diversified portfolio not performing like the S&P 500? And now it's, why is my diversified portfolio not performing like this basket of meme stocks that I did on my own? Which just seems like a very difficult conversation. I think I saw a study from the Tixis that outlined the, the spread in investors' expectations of what future annualized returns were going to be. And I think in the US, it was 17% a year. And then advisors and institutionals were in the 5% range. And that gap is just huge. And so I'm curious if, you know, factors are, will be a bridge to be able to kind of close that cap, gap a little bit as there's, you know, a, a, a quantitative approach to being more active in what you're picking inside a portfolio. No, I think, well, one of the things you could do in that conversation is you could show a volatility chart uh, <laughs> to to your cousin or really anyone who's claiming to be up 100% in the last year and show them that we've had two experiences where you know the VIX on a sustained basis broke out above 50 that was during the great financial crisis and during the pandemic of 2020 and you know those highly volatile environments which do allow for Opportun- uh, opportunity for profit more than low volatility environments, right? Uh, they they are very rare. So I, I think that's how you can properly display to someone the unique environment that we just experienced. That's great. All right. Well, switching gears here, we're going to do something fun and I'm just going to rapid fire. This has with- been so far. <laughs> now the fun begins. So we're going to go over some quick topics. I'm going to pose them to both of you guys. And I want to hear whether or not you think it's overrated or underrated. And if this segment is absolutely terrible, then we'll cut it out. I promise. <laughs> okay. All right. So the first one that we could go to, let's let's just do an easy layup. 10-year treasury yields going below 1% by the end of the year. Is that view overrated or underrated? I think it's overrated. I think the pressure is to the upside here. I, I'd be surprised if we got below one. All right. I'll, I'll just, just for purposes of the segment, I'll go with <laughs> underrated. <laughs> All right. How about um, describing inflation as transitory? Is that overrated or underrated? I'll, I'll let go, you go first. I'll go first again. I think it's underrated. I, I, I un, un, unfortunately, we've had a couple of prints that have continued to surprise to the upside on the inflation numbers. I do think it's transitory. So I don't know if I picked the right term to describe it, but um, I, I think we'll creep back down to low twos by the end of 2021 or end of 2022, this is, rather. Th- this is reflation. It is the perception of inflation. And let's hope it doesn't become the reality of deflation because that's the biggest problem. I don't think people ever realize that. I like that. How about the newfound hatred for payment for order flow? Is that overrated or underrated? 
Joe, let's be consistent. You got to come on, Joe. You're going number one. Is it over underrated? I, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily newfound, but I mean, the sentiment, the sentiment of payment yeah. for order flow. I don't think payment for order flow is as detrimental as people are making it out to be. Yeah, it's it's it, it's existed for a long time, and I think people are just shining a little bit of a lens on it more than they used to. But this seems to come up every few years anyway. So underrated. The payment for order flow system. Used to be called a specialist at the New York Stock Exchange mm-hmm. when you had open outcry. How about something fun? Chicken wings. Overrated, underrated? Overrated. Overrated. Wow. How about uh, pizza? Um, properly rated, but consensus is it's very highly rated. I'm an Italian from New York. Underrated. <laughs> I think we kind of already got at this one. How about Wall Street bets? Overrated or underrated? Overrated today. I, I'd be shocked if we're talking about them in, in 12 months, but. I may be unique in that thought. Hmm. Not sure. Tough one. How about um, FinTwit? Overrated or underrated? Overrated. I don't tweet very much. I don't know about Joe T, but yeah. I don't, I don't tweet much. I'm just curious. How do you, do you get paid on base, based on the number of followers? One of the senior executives at Virtus and I always have this conversation and you know, he, he rightfully says to me, like, like, how do these people, like, how do you make money? I don't understand that. It takes a lot of time if you're going to be good at it. And I, I agree. How are you okay, getting paid for that time? But, but you're good at it. Was that, what does that equate to? Is that a job? I don't know. I'm just, I don't, eyeballs, I guess. I don't know. I guess it's like being an Instagram influencer. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> How about um, ESG? Overrated or underrated? Ooh, under, underrated. I'll take the overrated. Really? All right, now you guys have to fight. Don't fight. (laughs) But I will go back to FinTwit for one second and point out Josh Brown, who's a good friend of mine, has like 1.1 million followers on Twitter, and he abandoned Twitter last year. It hasn't been the same since. It really hasn't. No. Josh just walked away from it, and he he, I don't think he regrets it for one second. (laughs) I can't imagine being at that profile and having that many followers, and people just everyone has a platform to say whatever they want, and you're just a target. I, I, I can't imagine the emotional bulletproof vest you'd have to wear to be able to walk around on that Twitter sphere. Right. With, all right, last one. This isn't over or underrated. I'm just curious who's winning the World Series this year. Joe Terranova, I know you love baseball, so I'm curious what your pick is. Uh, I, I'll tell you what, I think the Yankees are going to be there. They made wow. a great pickup with Rizzo. The Cubs dismantling was sad. But Rizzo's done great the, already. You know, it's 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 Rizzo. It's it's Gallo's not a bad pickup. They they have the pitching. The Yankees can make a very serious run, and I don't think the American League is that strong. So it's really who's going to challenge the Dodgers, and you have to respect mm-hmm. the Giants based on what they've done so far, year to date. Love it. Well, thank you so much for being here today. This was an absolute blast. Hopefully, we'll do it again sometime in the future. Where can everybody find you if they're looking for you? Virtus.com. That's the place where you're going to find a, a tremendous amount of thought leadership. We manage over $175 billion in assets. We have a tremendous lineup of portfolio managers, uh, all very strong, ranging from Nancy Zevenbergen to Dave Albright to Doug Foreman. Um, we really do George Gedelius. We have a very, very deep bench relationship with sustainable growth advisors. So I encourage everyone to look at Virtus.com. And on Virtus.com, you'll see a lot of the market insights that I put out uh, on a monthly basis.
Well, thank you so much for being here. And thanks everybody for listening. Have a great rest of your month. Helios Quantitative Research is a DBA of Clear Creek Financial Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor. The views expressed in this recording are personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Helios Quantitative Research itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, tax, legal, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where our firm and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advice may be rendered by our firm unless a client service agreement is in place. Helios Quantitative does not work with individuals and therefore does not provide personal financial advice. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Helios Quantitative Research does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Helios Quantitative Research as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including indirect, indirect, special, or consequential loss of damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright Helios Quantitative Research, LLC. All rights reserved.